All right, welcome to another episode of the Miko Paled podcast. We are a Palestine-centered podcast that aims to shine a light on the more underreported Palestinian experiences. And we do this through conversations with the brave human rights defenders living in Palestine, Israel, and the diaspora. So we hope everybody is staying safe out there uh, amidst this virus. We're keeping a really close eye on folks in Palestine, particularly since there have been reports now of COVID-19 having entered into Gaza. So that's an, an incredibly precarious situation, even despite the pandemic. And it's something that would really only wreak more havoc on the besieged people of Gaza. In addition to a lot of the other Palestinians living under Israeli rule and who are deliberately blocked off from you know, things like medical access or they're barred from receiving a really life-saving resources and aid. So there is a GoFundMe campaign that was launched this week. The name of that campaign is Face Masks for Gaza, which has a goal of raising 15,000 US dollars so please give what you can to face masks for gaza the organizers have connected with a local manufacturer to produce face masks in gaza because getting supplies you know in and out of gaza is next to impossible so this is great because you know it allows us to provide life-saving aid to those gazans who are themselves engaged in mutual aid project and you know i think that this is one of the most direct ways to provide material support right now and obviously time is of the essence. So I'm gonna go ahead and throw a link to the campaign in the podcast description page and the YouTube description page and uh, check that out and give what you can. So on to episode three. So this episode took place in the Nakab Desert that is in Southern Palestine and home to a very large uh, Bedouin community. Miko sat down to have a conversation with someone named uh, Rafat Abu Aish who is a Bedouin Palestinian activist and citizen of the state of Israel, who is from the town of Lakia. And Rafat was one of the main organizers of the protest against the Israeli government's ethnic cleansing program called the Prower Plan, which they'll get into in the episode. Um, the Power Plan was consequently rescinded as a result of a lot of the activism that uh, Rafat was involved with. And Rafat has been arrested dozens of times by the Israeli authorities for his activities. So this is a great episode because if you've ever wanted to learn about the Bedouin struggle for justice and freedom in Palestine in the face of Zionism, this is a perfect introduction because uh, Rafat and Miko frame the issue from 1948 onward to where the fight is at today. So enjoy Miko Paled and Rafat Abuesh. Sitting in Rahat, a Bedouin city in the Nakab Desert in Palestine, the southern part of Palestine. I'm uh, with my friend Rafat Abraish, who is an activist here, um, and has taken me around, and we've seen the different uh, towns and communities in the Nakab. And it's a part of Palestine that we hear very little about, very, very little. We, in fact, it's rarely mentioned in the news, it's rarely mentioned anywhere. And there are many things that are taking place here. The, the fate of the <coughs> local Palestinian Bedouins is something that uh, is rarely told and needs to be told and needs to be, be understood. So maybe you can, you can start, you can give me a little background about the Bedouin here in the, Nika, in the Nakab. Hello to you and everybody, my friend Miko. Every time you come to the Nakab, we are happy to host you. Uh, 
Yes, there is a lot to tell about the Nakab and you'll have to give me points to start telling and what you want to hear. Um, ha I'm very happy at first to for, for you being here and for coming and for every information that we can give about the situation here. So I would start by saying that Nakab is, uh, is, is a part of the whole Palestinian struggle and um, the whole struggle against Zionism and then the actions and policies of is Israel everywhere that is very are very similar to each other and what we are suffering is the same as everybody so what do you want me to tell you well this is interesting because the bedouin and Nakab are considered citizens of the state of israel and the assumption is that since they're citizens they have rights like everybody else and um, maybe you can start with a little bit historically where the Nakab, where the bedouins and Nakab lived what happened to them in 1948 um, and then we could talk about what is happening today. Sure. So, yeah, we, we are Israeli citizens. We do hold Israeli citizenship. Uh, because when occupation came uh, to Palestine in the year 48 and before, with, with all of the Zionist movement and program, uh, in the Nakba, before the year 48, we had 95,000 Bedouins living all over the Nakab from Amrashrash in the south until you get to, to the last point of the Nakab and to the Gaza, uh, to Gaza in, in the north and to Beersheba. So there were 95,000 Bedouins around. One day after Nakba, uh, more than 90% of them were kicked out. Around 11,000 Bedouins, uh, Bedouin Arab Palestinians were the ones who stayed inside of Palestine and everybody else was moved and kicked out and or killed by the Israeli gangs. Uh, most of them were moved into to moved into Jordan, to Gaza, to uh, to Sinai, and the ones who stayed in there that were eleven thousands, as we said before, got Israeli citizenships with time after they lived through the military regime and after their lands were taken away by the, the Israeli occupation and by Israel, uh, they stayed and with international law they they had to get uh, Israel was forced to give them. Uh, Israeli citizenships even though we were given Israeli citizenships that didn't mean that any rights are equal to Israelis or that we got anything special from others we are still living in the same conditions that uh, in conditions that are very similar to other Palestinians who live under uh, under main occupation in the West Bank uh, yeah any in the knock-up today there are more than hundred thousand Bedouins I'll give you just an example more than hundred thousand Bedouins living without electricity or water uh, and getting home demolitions every year. Just last year, uh, no, I would say just 2018, in one year, there were 2,775 houses demolished in the Nakab. That that's more than what was demolished everywhere. So, so, after, so before 1948, there were 90,000. After 1948, there were 11,000 left. And where were they? Where did they live? The ones who were left were moved by the Israeli gangs. Uh, in trucks or by force uh, to an area called the siege area. It was called the siege area because there was a siege around it at the time when uh, when the Israelis mainly made it. It's an area uh, goes from the settlement of Dimona to the settlement of Yeroham and then by to the settlement of Arad and then connects to Beersheba. When you make to Beersheba, when you make one line to to everywhere, you would find that it makes a triangle of areas and it consists of only 3.5% of the natives of the Naqab's area and of the Naqab's land 
So, and we so were we used to live in the whole Nakab. We own the whole Nakab. It's our land, the whole desert of the Nakab. But we were moved to 3.5. That's what we are fighting to still have today. So, uh, the Nakab Desert is known to be a very fertile desert. It's not like a regular desert. So, the Bedouin Palestinians actually engage in agriculture, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what, the, what the Israelis always, the version that the Israelis always try to sell is that Bedouins used to move from one went one place to another. But their people are land because they're Bedouin, they're nomads. Yeah. That's, that's the story. Yeah. So, but the idea of moving or leaving one area to another in Bedouin culture was very specific. Yani we left two trips through the years. One of them is the winter trip. One of them is the summer trip. The summer trip is when you go up, you go, uh, you go down the mountain in order to get the shade of the mountain. And the winter trip is the one that you go up the mountain in order to not get the rain, uh, rivers of rain that are taking your home away and floods and stuff. So, but then we moved with cattle and with our sheep. But those are people who are responsible for the sheep. They would move and take the sheep to, to eat and to, to, to go to more fertile areas or more agricultural areas. But yeah, we did agriculture the land and Bedouins did make, uh, we are a society that lived through with agriculture, but mainly with animals. The relationship with the, for Bedouins is with the land and the animals. And um, so you said there were 11,000 left, and now there are how many? You talked about 100,000 living without electricity or, or yeah. connected so, to the so grid. The so how many are fear, The biggest fear to the Israelis today, Miku, is that uh, Bedouins, uh, with the years, we, the, within the past years, we have been called many names by the Israeli officials. But the main one and the, the, more, the most interesting one was we were called a demographic danger to the state of Israel uh, because we give birth to many children with the years. Uh, since the year 48 until today, today you have from, from, uh, from 11,000 Bedouins, we turned into 240,000 Bedouins wow. in 70 years. And today, these 240,000, how do they live? Where do they live? So there are three kinds of living in the Naqab. Uh, the first one is planned towns, which are seven towns that were built by the Israeli occupation in order to, to make the nomad Bedouins, as they say, uh, more civil. So we were forced to, to move from the tents to houses in these seven towns. You, so you called them townships once townships, when we spoke. Yeah. Why did you use that name? Uh, because it's, it's not, we'll say, it's, it's not part of our identity it's not, it's not, it's not um, something that we chose to live in it's something that you were forced to live in and the first example of how we were forced to it is that in the 50s and through the military regime uh, a law was passed that consists that talks about the Nakab in the Israeli Knesset at the time it's called the, the law to prevent raising black goats yani <coughs> the Israeli government so they passed a law about goats they passed a law about goats yeah Okay. And about specifically black goats. Why did they do that? In order to prevent us from building our Bedouin tents that are made of the hair of these goats. <coughs> so they made us move our way of life and they took the lands and they took ev everything from the society. And through hundreds of years, our way of living was demolished by, by the Israelis. So the first one, we said the planned town. Second one is <coughs> newly planned towns, newly recognized towns. 
which are villages that were recognized by the Israeli government since the year 2000 until today they didn't get any services or anything so special. they were when were these towns built created they were always there oh. nothing was created in the Nakab except for the planned towns oh, okay but uh, we were always <coughs> there or we were moved to there by the Israeli government in, in occupation or so by the, the towns government. that were there before the state of Israel yes they, the people were there before the state of Israel and the the last way of living is the unrecognized towns villages these are villages that these are historic most of them are historical villages that uh, they, they have the majority of Bedouins living in them uh, the majority of Bedouins living in them and they have no electricity no water home demolishes uh, no streets no schools and they are being uh, the Israelis are being racist against them and uh, so how many how many people live in the unrecognized towns around 100 there are, there is no numbers about it because the Israeli government considers unrecognized towns as non they don't exist yeah. they don't exist mm. so even when there is a war <coughs> they don't have bomb shelters or any uh, or anything whatever. any defense yeah any defenses to these towns because they are empty for them so we don't have uh, the numbers that we think are right around 140,000 Bedouins live in unrecognized towns so 140,000 citizens of the state of Israel live no without water, without water. electricity, yeah. without roads, without schools, without yeah. access to medical care. True. Okay, that's something we should take a moment. And they get home demolished. And when they build, their homes get demolished. Yeah. So that's something to take a minute and kind of digest and, and, and come to terms with. The state of Israel has over 100,000 citizens in towns that get no services. Um, and what is the, is there a reason? Did the state give a reason? Do they, they explain this? give you a reason they wouldn't give you a reason or an alternative the only thing that the only excuse that the Israeli government uses is that your house is illegal who made it illegal you made it illegal you came here who can make it legal nobody wherever you want to go to get a permission to build your house in your own land that you, you inherited from your grandfather there is no I would say that Miko and you can check that out behind me okay that there is no legal body in the Naqab today, that's allowed to give a permission for one Bedouin to build the house. For the Bedouin? For the Bedouins. Now, you, you don't know where to go to get a permission to build because there is no place that gives you, but all of them can demolish your house. But at the same time, oh, and, and also the Bedouin today, are they allowed to um, work <coughs> in agriculture today? What agriculture, man? We can't build houses. Yani, they wouldn't give you that. The idea in the Nakab. Yani so when you, co no when, you compare Mikum, when you when you compare Bedouins to Jews in the Nakab, okay. When a Jew comes to the Nakab, and there are many programs to bring Jews to the Nakab from the center in order to make less pressure on the center because most of the Jews live in there and the Zionists live in there, and they want to bring him here to the Nakab. When a Jew comes to the Nakab, he can choose the way of life he wants. He can live in a kub in a kibbutz, in a mushav. He can live in a in a city. He can live in a village. He can live in a in a loan farm. You know what loan farms are, Miku? You do. Loan farms mm -hmm. are farms that uh, made for Jews that one Jewish family or one Jewish guy can come and say I dream about agriculture the Nakab they would give him thousands of dunims and acres of lands uh, in order to build the project that he dreams of without getting anything from him and they would give him all the services that he wants and there are a lot hundreds of lawn farms in the Nakab for Jews but when a Bedouin are there any Bedouin lawn farms there is none for example, the story of Umm al-Hiran, the town of Umm al-Hiran. It's, it's a village that's supposed to be demolished and it's going to be demolished soon. 
in order to build a Jewish town in its place, a Jewish settlement in its place. It's a Bedouin town that the people in there were moved in the 50s by the Israeli army uh, to the area in there that they exist. They are in the, in the western border of, of the Nakab. So uh, they were moved from one place to Ibn Haran yeah. and now they're being kicked out of Ibn Haran. In order to put a Jewish settlement oh. in their place. Next to them, just a few kilometers away from them, you can see uh, a lone farm called Golden Dog. Okay, Golden Dog uh, consists of thousands of, of dunams of land in, in the Naqab and it's, what is it made for? It's a cemetery and the hotel for dogs. Okay, they have electricity, they have water, they have Wi-Fi. They a have hotel port. for dogs. Yeah, a hotel for dogs. The dogs have Wi-Fi, we don't, bro. So, um, now there are quite a few uh, Israeli Jewish towns and settlements, like you said, and and agricultural communities, and they seem to be doing very well. I mean, they're green, and they're quite wealthy, and they do very, very well. Uh, at the same time, right next to them sometimes, and you showed me this across the street, uh, like Omer and Tel Sheba, right? Yeah. One is a thriving, upper-middle-class, wealthy town, the Israeli Jewish one, and Tel Sheba is not, right? The example of Omer and Tel Sheba shows exactly the discrimination in budgets and, and services that is Arab, between Arab towns and, and Jewish ones. Omer today is considered the most, uh, in, in the rate of welfare in Israel, it's one of the, the four most rich towns uh, in, uh, in occupation in Israel. But when it comes to, to Tel Sheva, it's one of the last ones. You have, in Tel Sheva, people have no, no jobs. They have, uh, uh, the, the, the town that was the first to be built by the Israeli government, the first planned town, Tel Seba, uh, with time it, it was made to be a ghetto for, for the Arabs and for the Bedouins in there. You have crime, you have unemployment, you have drugs, you have uh, discrimination against them, you have the police coming in there and when they are doing, they are doing nothing for the people. And the, one of the first stories about Tel Seba when the when they made Tel Seba is about the Israeli police selling drugs from the police cars to the people in order to create a situation of drugs inside inside the towns. So the idea is that Israeli, Israel does not look at us as citizens. They look at us as a danger to the government and they try to just demolish any way of resistance or existence that we would feel or we would believe. So you have Omar on the one side of the street, which is one of the four wealthiest communities, uh, Israeli communities in the entire country, across the street you have, or across the highway, you have Tel Saba, which is one of the poorest, the highest rates of unemployment and crime, and similar to what happened in, in the U.S., in Los Angeles particularly, where the police were actually encouraging drug, and the, and the government was encouraging the sale of drugs. Uh, to the community, this is happening in Tel Saba as well, and they're one across the street from the other, basically. Yeah, and that's the reality. That's and that really sums up the 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 way the state of Israel is treating the Bedouin community, and 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 on the other hand, the way the privileges that it gives to the Jewish Israelis who come and live here and live here, really live in beautiful, beautiful communities. Now we saw a whole bunch of forests when we were driving around the Naqab. Can you talk about the forests? Yeah, you saw the Lahav forest, which the Lahav forest is uh, the GNF forest. GNF is the Jewish National Fund, which is one of the main one of the main bodies that you would talk about when you explain about the Naqab. The GNF 
has made its its propaganda in uh, in Europe is we are making the desert green. But the truth is that they are taking Bedouins out of their lands and Arabs out of their lands. Because the land is pre very green. I mean, we travel today, the entire Naqab is green. Yeah, true. And very beautiful. It's, it, the Naqab is, is a very big area. It's 60% of the historical Palestine. Okay, so it has lots of uh, lots of ways and shapes of, of Tabaris. Of, uh, uh, you have the green part, which is the, the northern Naqab. It's very green and it's very agricultural. And Bedouins used to agriculture that. Uh, in the year... In the year 36, the people of Al Jammame, which is a, uh, a Bedouin town, uh, used to to make uh, how, how do I say it? Used to used to agriculture and sell through Gaza their agriculture to Europe. Oh, export. Time. Yeah, to yeah. export to Europe. So that was this is something that you wouldn't just it's not you wouldn't pass by that easy. Okay. Right. Uh, so the Bedouins in the Nakab in the 1930s were actually exporting agricultural products True. through Gaza, through the port of Gaza to Europe. Yeah, uh, one more thing. Yeah, so about the GNF and the, the, GNF, the yes. Jewish National Fund. Their propaganda is that we are making the Nakab green. So for example, this, the village of Al-Araqib was demolished 167 times until today. And the people are refusing to leave their town. But why are they being demolished? Because the Israeli government is planning to build the GNF forest in their place and to move the, uh, the people from their area. So we, we passed through the Lahab forest. It's the biggest, it's called the biggest uh, man-planted forest in the Middle East. Okay, it's very, it's a very big man-planted forest. All the trees have no relationship with this land. It's all European trees that came to here with, with the settlers, with the Israeli settlers to, to, to the Maqab. And uh, they would just take your olive trees from the area and the, the Bedouin trees and the trees and all the trees that are connected to the land and they would put stuff that would just destroy the land. That's what they when do. we were in Al-Araqib together, one of the times, uh, Aziz, the Sheikh Sayyag's uh, son, showed us aerial photos, <coughs> I think from the time of the British mandate, that showed that the entire area was cultivated, yeah. that you could tell from the air that it actually was green and it was cultivated. So we would, they didn't need the JNF to come and make it green. Um, but I want to talk to you about, I want to throw two names of organizations <coughs> and I want you to tell me about them. One is Tnuat uh, Gavim, and the other one is the Israeli police unit called Yoav. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about, about those two, um, what those two things are. So let's start from Ragavim because it's, uh, it's like we have personal issue with Ragavim. <laughs> Uh, Regavim is a, is a very right wing. You have a personal issue with Regavim? Yeah, we all have a personal issue with Regavim. You mean all Bedouin? All Bedouins have a personal mm -hmm. issue with Regavim. Regavim is the biggest criminal in the Nakab today. Along with, with the Av unit, yeah. You mean a criminal organization? Yeah, we call it, we know and we call it a criminal organization. Uh, Regavim is a very, it is the most right wing organization that is controlling the policies that are being planned planned and they're put on the people of the Nakab. Uh, they, they, they say, they sell the story that the Bedouins are controlling and stealing lands of the Israelis. Yani the whole land is Aslan, yani Arab, and, and, but the, the truth is that you are, they are taking your land day and day and day, day and day. To you before we fought for the whole Nakab, because it's all, we own it and it's ours and we have the relationship with it. Today we are fighting on 3.5% of the land of the Nakab, and that's what Regavim is fighting us on. Okay, they don't, they don't recognize this for us, and they would say that we are trying to steal and steal and steal. 
Yergavim does all what they can in order to prevent any Arab from owning any land in the Nakam. How do they do that? And by the way, Regavim, R-E-G-A-V-I-M, is the name of this organization. And so how do they do this? How do they interfere with your life? Regavim would try to force the Israeli street in the main... Uh, the, the most of the work is to try to, to affect the mainstream, the Israeli mainstream against the Bedouins. They would use the uh, Israeli... Uh, the Israeli uh, newspapers, the Israeli websites, the Israeli platforms in order to to just tell the stories that they believe to and what what they to lie about the makam and to yeah you read i read them uh their stuff and their narrative is the bedouins are taking over they're stealing yeah. our land they're stealing our water they're building illegally of course they're on their own land how could they possibly be doing anything illegally and how could they be taking it since it's sure. theirs originally but this is the narrative that they're perpetuating yeah that's so it's a completely it's a complete lie and it's um and more, the Regavim would, would go with the help of the Israeli, mm. the Israeli authorities into demolished towns and into historical Palestinian towns in order to change the they come in, the They come they in with them. They go in with them and they would... Uh, yeah, the, the Israelis through the history and since occupation have had many ways to change history. When you say occupation, you're talking about 1948, the occupation about of all of Palestine. The whole system, it's yeah. all occupation, Miko. Yeah. Uh, in the 48, in the 67, it's all, it's the same. Uh, the idea of, of uh, Ragavim is, yani, w with the years, the Israelis have been doing a lot in order to change histories and change towns and to change the, what remains to, rem to make us remember Palestine and what remains from the Palestinian civil civilization at the time and from our history. Yani, for example, in demolished towns that the people were kicked off in the 48, Qura Muhajjara, uh, we call them in the refugee towns yani, they would go take cows in there and, and make them live in the area because ca when cows go they demolish when cows go they, they cover the tracks and they cover the houses and they cover the, and the stuff there are many ways for them to do yani, the same as the JNF uh, planting trees European trees in order to change the, the land and to take it and one of the co-founders of the Tnuat Gavim is today the is a minister in the Israeli government and he's a member of the Israeli uh, security cabinet. Yeah. Bezalel Smotrich, who was a settler and, 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 and a racist and, a, and quite a criminal, actually. It's important to know that most of the people that take the Ministry of Agriculture in Israel, which is the ministry that is responsible for the Nakab and for everything in the Nakab, even the, the schools in the Nakab, okay? The, the Ministry of Agriculture has a part in being responsible them and in, in bringing the funds and then foundation so it's always the one who was there he would if you search through their history for example Uri Ariel he is he was the minister this time and he was in Ragavim he worked in Ragavim before Bitzel Smutrich he had a relationship with Ragavim he was he's he, the was, he was the co-founder he's the co-founder yes and Yair Mayan was very close to Ragavim so the so the Ministry of Agriculture controls the life of the Bedouin Palestinian people as well not just the land and the agriculture in the Nakab yes Okay, and now what is this Yoav unit that the Israeli police has? Because if you look at their website, they look like a commando unit, like they are out to, I don't know, yeah, sure. fight terrorists. They are or fighting something. the Bedouin ter Israeli citizen terrorists. What do they do? So, in order to understand the Yoav unit, we have to meet uh, another body that's very important and it's the most important in the Nakab, which is the authority for developing the Nakabs and for, for, for it's called, in Hebrew, it's called Arishut Lazdarat Yishvut Bedwit. Okay, yeah. so the, the authority to uh, 
you know, manage the, the, the Bedouin settlements in the Nakam. Yeah, Nakam. because we are settlers, we too, you know. You need to be settled, yes. You need yeah. to be organized. We need to be organized. So, yeah, the idea for, for this ministry, the Bedouins, when, when, when the Arab Bedouins talk about it, we call it the, the martial uh, regime, al hukm al-Askari, which is... Ah, the military regime. Yeah, the yes. military regime. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about the authority, because the authority is... Well, take it like this. The only part in Israel, or maybe the world, that has an authority that's responsible for one part of the people, or one population of the, of, of the people, just, just for the Bedouins, made only for the Bedouins, the authority, and it has all the fundings that go to the Nakab, has to go through this authority that the Israeli government would give and have to give. And not only, uh, يعني, it has its own police unit, this authority, the authority, the UAV unit, when they go to which they have unit is a unit let's say no they have unit is a unit that's responsible only for the it's a police unit that has no tag names that are responsible for demolishing houses and for pizur of ganot oh, to uh to uh dis um dispersed protesters yeah so these are the only two jobs for this in the nakab and it's only works in the nakab man there's no have unit in the rest of the of the country so there's a management uh authority to manage the population and they have a police unit yeah which manages which which is in charge of home demolition and and, and demonstrations yeah and it's only works in the nakab and it's only made for the people of of the nakab the israeli government fears the bedouins very much okay they mm -hmm. uh, they fear our existence and they hate us and they consider us as arab and uh, with the years they try to force their uh, jurisdiction on the bedouins but this the bedouin arab society never believed and never, uh, never felt as a part of Israel and never tried to be a part of it. Even though the Israeli propaganda with the years would tell that the Bedouins were soldiers or would go they to do. the They do. The army. story is most people think that the Bedouins serve in the army. We don't serve in the army. We, the, the numbers, two years ago, the Israeli military, uh, Ministry of Defense, it was their mistake that they didn't do it again. They published the numbers of Bedouins of the Nakab who served who serve in the army. So at the at the time, two hundred sixty-four Bedouins were serving in the army from the Nakab. Out of a With population of two hundred sixty thousand. Yeah, so it's nothing. Yeah. It's less than one percent. And so other. This is a, this is a myth that's important to to dispel. Yeah. So we were never part of Israel. We never felt Israel. Even when we need to to settle a solution, we wouldn't go to the Israeli law. We would go to the Bedouin tribal law. The, that's one of the definitions of, of our society. So because we we don't feel that we belong to Israel, we would never do that. And we have been suffering from occupation our whole years. And we, uh, in, in our mentality and in our souls, we are against uh, the Israeli occupation. And we're all, we have always been, always been saying that we are against Israeli occupation. So what they tried with the years to do is to just give us someone to be responsible for us. And they have all, uh, the power that they need, yani the UAV unit, Miku, uh, from the funding, from the fundings, from the funds that get to the Nakab, yeah, the budget of, of the Nakab, uh, that goes through the that goes through the authority for developing the Nakab. Most of them go to something in Hebrew called the uh, Shipurim Tzayachifa, which is the um, uh, I'll think of the English word in just a minute. Go on. Okay. <laughs> so we're talking about hundreds of yeah. millions. The law enforcement, the, the, yeah. the, the methods of enforcing the law. Yeah. So that's yeah. The, the thing that they would give budgets to. They we wouldn't give the budget to schools. They wouldn't give the budgets to, 
to to the to the townships or to to the villages or to to make any services to the people in those villages or to give them water or not. These budgets just go to buying to buying uh, to buying SUVs for the police and then more guns and more tractors and more stuff to and again we're talking about a, a civil so a society that is a civilian society within what is considered the legitimate if you consider it legitimate boundaries of the state of Israel these are Israeli citizens we're not talking about the Gaza Strip or the West yep. Bank we're talking about Israeli a society of Israeli citizens that by the way have never fought have never carried arms have never had any kind of you know armed resistance or anything like that so uh, w one more thing I want to ask you about is this. So you were born here into this reality. You live here. Uh, you're an activist. You've been uh, in some of the most important protests. You've led protests. You've been imprisoned uh, plenty of times. 14 times. 14 times. 14 times? Yeah. Okay. What are you fighting for? What is the, what is the end? What is the goal? What do you believe is the end goal? Or should be the end goal for people who are uh, fighting uh, this 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 regime of occupation and, and racism and apartheid, which is the state of Israel. The end, What's the end of occupation in all historical Palestine? And uh, the I would I w if I would answer this question very in very very fast, I would say that I'm fighting to end the Zionism and I'm fighting to end the occupation everywhere. Uh, fighting for my people to get uh, their pride back and to get their land back and to because we are a very proud society that with the years our pride was the most important thing with us when occupation came to, to us our land was taken away from us so we want our land back but not only we want the people who were kicked out of, uh, of the Nakab to come back the Palestinian refugees uh, we are not leaving our homes and we are staying in them and that's what the people of the Nakab proved the whole years even though you demolish the, the village 160 times the people still build their houses again they, they said sometimes the Israelis just ask themselves how the hell we do that yani. even though the land that we live in is not if you ask any Israeli they wouldn't uh, agree to come live in the situation and conditions that we live no. in and they wouldn't like it but we love it man yani. it's very it's very suitable for us and we love the desert we love the land we we don't we just don't want anybody to demolish our homes or, or to try to touch our pride or to try to uh, to take our dignity from us so what we are fighting against is the end of occupation and the end of zionism and equal yeah. rights and the right of return and basically. equal rights of course if i end zionism i surely i'm bringing my refugees back man so yeah excellent all right thank you very much come to the negative people come to the negative it is a beautiful beautiful part of Palestine and uh, like Rafat say, it is said it is the it covers about 60% of historic Palestine thank you Miko alright that's gonna do it thanks to everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Miko Palette podcast as always please rate and review us on iTunes or Google or Spotify or whatever podcast app you like please donate what you can any amount to the face mask for gaza gofundme campaign which is linked below in the description and lastly please head over to mikoplay.com to get miko's latest articles that he writes for mint press news join our email newsletter and you can also order miko's books through the website as well now is as good a time as ever to just sit down and get into some books that you've been slacking off on. So if you haven't picked up a copy of The General Sun 
War and Justice. Uh, those are Miko's two books. Uh, we encourage you to pick up a copy. Obviously, Miko's events have all been canceled for the foreseeable future. So right now, buying a copy of his books or gifting it to a friend or maybe selecting it as part of your book club is really the best way that you can help support the work. If you have any questions for Miko, shoot those over via email to booking at mikopaled.com and I can try and get those answered on forthcoming episodes. All right, till next time.